Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 190, Top 10 Mystery Games. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast with board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony is that time of season. The leaves are changing. Things are getting a little spooky. And as October starts to kind of get a little bit darker, it is our Halloween episode. And this year, we're getting into the more spooky themes. We're talking about mystery games. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to do this one because currently outside it is 90 degrees. So anything that reminds me that it is in fact fall, I'm all about. Come on, weather. <laughs> Well, climate change can also be spooky. It's very spooky. (laughs) So yes, we have our top 10 mystery games. Typically, each and every year, we try to take something about the Halloween season and take a look at games that you might be interested in playing during this time. And this time, we're talking about the top 10 mystery games. So games that employ a lot of that kind of hidden, unsure, where am I playing? Where am I moving? Who's against me? Who's with me? Who's on my team? And where's the bad guy, of course, because if it's going to be Halloween and it's going to be spooky, it's typically a bad guy somewhere out there. All right, so that's what's going to go on with our feature review a little bit later. But before we get into our feature review, we want to let you know about all of the non-spooky upfront right there in your face for your entertainment value. Anthony, what is going on with BGA this week? Yes, last week we announced a contest. And then we launched a contest. Is it a spooky contest? Yeah, well, it's such a spooky contest, you guys. It's We want to know your top 20 games. Ooh, spooky. It's a mystery what they might be. <laughs> it's a mystery to us. <laughs> yeah, like I put this together. didn't even think about a theme for this month. Um, this is going to be for our a later list that we're going to do towards the end of the year. But we're doing the contest this month so that we can get all the entries in and check the list and get everybody's input. And of course, because we're asking you guys to do something, we are giving away games if you enter you are eligible to win one of the games from the listeners top 20 so once we create that top 20 list you'll be able to pick one and hopefully your exact list isn't the exact list so that you can pick a game off the list but i'm pretty sure we're going to get some nice diversity in there yeah so just click on the link here in the show notes if you're on the podcast it's right here on the page if you're on the website you can hit us up on facebook there's a link pinned to the top there So I've put it all the different places so you can find it and just click there. All we need is your list of top 20 games. Format it however you want, because I'm going to take it all and throw it in a spreadsheet. So it it does not matter how it's organized or the order in which it's organized, just as long as those are your top 20 games. As soon as you enter that, you are entered to win that game. And the contest is going to run until the very end of the month, October 31st. Halloween, we'll probably announce the winner sometime middle of November. So make sure you get on that and um, hit up the contest as soon as you can. Got about three weeks left when this comes out. All right, so there's some Halloween-ness in there. They're going to get some treats for giving us their top 20 games. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a nice Halloween treat. I mean, don't wait until Halloween because I'd like to get a jump start and pulling together that spreadsheet. (laughs) But um, the sooner you put it in, the happier I'll be. There will be no preferential treatment, but just remember that I'm happy. <laughs> well, that's the trick part of it. Hopefully you will not get tricked by a lot of our no. listeners out there and they will give you a nice treat so we can return some nice treats out to them. So please, everyone get involved in the contest, not only for the future upcoming episode, but because we'd like to know what games you love to play so we can talk a lot more about those. All right, Anthony, so... That's a lot of great, fun stuff that's upcoming from BGA. What's going on with our listeners? What's our question of the week? Okay, so this one was inspired by the giant pile of stuff sitting in the corner of my room that I need to get rid of. (laughs) I asked everybody, is there a set time each year you review and cull your collection? Or is it more spontaneous? Or, for the hoarders among us, myself included, do you put it off indefinitely? So 
Uh, Peter says, I'm a completionist, so no culling necessary. Rather the contrary, I've got a half a million games yet to pick up. Um, Eric also says, why would I cull my collection? What is this madness you speak of? But some other people do actually cull collections. Um, Tim says he does it before conventions. He at least tries. And then he, he does try to put a few things into auction lists or math trades. There is, a, I mean, different people have different responses here. People who move fairly frequently say, oh, yes, of course, anytime I move, I look at what I do or do not have. Um, David, our buddy, uh, mentioned he's been calling on an ongoing basis for the past year to get his collection under control. Um, and Mike says, uh, kind of on, on my camp at least, board games are not like video games. Video games can be uninstalled or deleted when you know you've beaten it enough or technology has passed it by. Board games are timeless. So long as you have space, you should just store them or pay them forward so they live on. I agree, and I wish I had space, but I don't. So I do cull games usually in the middle of the summer between the two big cons that we go to, and then usually right around now when I've played everything that was picked up over the summer. And I have all this stuff that I was like, I don't really like these very much, or we played them out. I'm not going to play these anymore. You know, whatever it is, it ends up being, there's always that giant pile. And more often than not, it ends up in boxes in the basement, but the goal is to get rid of them. So um, it is. Are the games in the basement haunting you now, Anthony? They're so haunting me. <laughs> it is literally every Saturday. It is at the back of my brain. Like you should take those games. You should take those games to the store and sell them. You should put those on eBay. You should just message your friends. Ask if they'll come pick them up. I don't know. And then I just don't do it. Oh, man. It's, a, it's like an Edgar Allan Poe story. The uh, Telltale board game, I guess. Just just beating there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just dice rolling. <laughs> I can hear dice somewhere in the house. Somewhere in the walls. The dice are rolling. I know it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is something that it's affected everybody, especially that there's only so much time in the day. And for me, the haunted collection tends to be the games that I want to get to the table. And the scary part of the games is when you look at your collection and you see a lot of your games are still shrink wrapped. And that's really horrifying because you're like, I bought that because I really think I'd like to get that to the table. And it's looking at me and it's kind of questioning my existence just just from looking at it. Why won't you play me? I want to play you. I don't know what's going on here. It's yes. Yeah, you know, one day there'll be enough time, but then for some reason my glasses will break and then I won't be able to see the rules and I'll lose the dice or something else will happen that'll be tragic but uh hilarious to somebody, I'm sure. For me, culling the collection typically <laughs> comes, I guess, probably early November, just before the big Black Friday sales and before Christmas. So I'm looking forward to finally, possibly, maybe this year being the year that I actually might cull my collection. But at this point, I typically put everything together to sell and then it kind of finds its way back onto the shelf, which is kind of scary. I think the games have a life of their own. Maybe it's one of those kind of, you know, horrifying Toy Story things where they just don't want to be sold. So at some point, <laughs> hopefully I can find them a new home. But until then, they remain part of the undead collection. It just won't go away, my friend. Will not go away. Yeah, we've all got that undead collection. <laughs> the games that you just, I'm done with this. I'm really, really done with this. I'm not going to play this anymore. My, my group doesn't want to play this anymore. And somehow it just remains in the collection. Just does not go away. All right. So that's everything that's going on with our haunted collection. So if you want to tell us more about your collection that seems to never go away or is haunting you because you haven't gotten those games to the table, be sure to reach out to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. There's so many ways to get in touch with us. We really want to hear from you. Give us those terrifying stories where all those games were in shrink and not even touched and maybe we'll be able to help you out in the future getting those games to the table all right anthony so a lot of games are really you know keeping us away from the table but what's your acquisition disorders okay so it is almost essen and that my essen list this year i'm not going to essen thankfully my wallet says thank <laughs> you but it is very long. there's i could probably list off 20 to 30 games that i would be interested in including some expansions I've talked about a few of them in recent weeks, but then they keep announcing new ones, which I mean, come on, guys, it's <laughs> we're only three weeks away. What are you doing? So this one jumped right up on the list for a variety of reasons. It is Blackout Hong Kong. It's designed by Alexander Pfister. It's his new release this year from Spiel, and it is a very unique theme. Actually, interestingly enough, like looking at it, it almost made me think it was a co-op the first time I saw it, like the 
player count is one to four. It's got this big black board. It's got this network where you're moving around. The idea is that Hong Kong has been struck by this huge blackout and you're trying to help get things under control and fix things. And it just sounded like it would be a co-op. It's not. It's an Alexander Pfister game. So it is a competitive game. And it actually borrows some uh, elements, at least a little bit from like Mombasa and some of his other bigger, heavier games. And it seems like the weight is in that category. You know, we're looking at a decently heavy game, at least in terms of his stuff. So I'm really excited for this one. I don't know a ton about it, but the art style is very evocative. It's very dark. Um, Two-tone pictures depending on the scenes, the, the cover of it is black and white. It just brings a lot of different things together. So there's some planning involved. You're having cards in your hand. You're going to be placing them in these slots in front of you. And then those are going to build up over time, um, kind of similar to what you had in Mombasa with these different stacks of cards that you can pull up under certain circumstances. And you can recruit new cards and bring them down and, and complete these different objectives. There's a rondelle involved for getting different types of resources you need. Lots and lots of stuff. This is kind of a thing Fister does in his heavier games is he brings together all these diverse different mechanisms and it almost always works. So I'm excited to see how this one plays. The I think the English rule book just recently went up in the last couple of days. So I'm, you know, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but just skimming through it looks definitely like something up my alley. And uh, of course, it's coming at Essen. So I don't know when I get to try it. But <laughs> as soon as it hits these shores, I will be playing it and I will let you guys know what I think. That's a blackout, Hong Kong. This looks like a fantastic game. The rondelle looks great. The artwork looks great. It looks like a really fun game. And as you said, just just a, a surprising number of great games popping out. And this is definitely one I want to get to the table. So a game that I'm looking at is one that I talked about not too long ago. It's a standalone game for a game that is constantly hitting my tables at my different game groups. That's Concordia Venus. This is by Matt Gertz. And if you know anything about Concordia, and you should because it's an outstanding game, it's now become, I guess, the modern classic pickup and deliver. Basically, you're sailing along in the Mediterranean, you are picking up different resources, you're building trading posts, and then you are utilizing these hands of cards to be able to activate different senators, different trading options, and to basically gain resources from different areas. It's a fantastic game. A lot of ways to play a number of different maps up for it. It already has an expansion salsa that adds a little more to the game. This is a standalone game. We thought this originally was going to be an expansion, but it's a standalone game. All right. So what's new for this expansion is there are going to be teams of two in which they'll play against each other. There's new personality cards with the goddess Venus allowing for new strategies and new maps with the box. So that's pretty fantastic. I'm looking at the images from Board Game Geek, and they have a new map for Hellas. So you're going to be able to play in that, which is excellent. And then there's new cards, which is excellent. So there's going to be the Magistrator, there's the Pro Council, and then your original cards, the Mercator and the Architect. So a lot of different ways to play. Playing those cards give you special ability, but they also give you a way to score victory points at the end of the game. So as much as it is as a pickup and deliver in a kind of way, but it's also a set collection. It's a rondelle in your hand. It's just, it's a really fantastic game. I'm really interested to see how this mechanic plays out of having teams of two. We typically don't see that in a lot of different games. So this is really going to be interesting to see if this really kind of surpasses Concordia or just fails outright. Yeah, I'm really interested. I mean, I haven't played Concordia nearly as much as you. I I like it and I'd like to see anything interesting or unique you can do with it. We're starting to see kind of the mechanisms that, you know, make this game unique filter out into other types of games too. So it's interesting to see kind of uh Mackert's re-envisioning his own system a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely it's like kind of like a spiritual successor as we're seeing with a, a lot of designers do these days. All right, so that's everything that we want to hit the table in the upcoming future. We're going to talk about the games that hit our table and let you know if those games are a buy and you should pick those up. Let you know if those games are a play and you should definitely sit down. If those games are a dodge and you should avoid them at all costs. Or if the game is a dreaded burn and it's just haunted and stay, stay far away from this scary, scary game. All right, Anthony. So what games did you get to the table this week? Okay, got a couple games and they are about as opposite from each other as you can get. Well, not maybe as opposite as I thought, but... They look very different. Um, <laughs> the first one is Manhattan. This is an old game. Um, I mean, in, in board game <laughs> terms, it's ancient. It is from 1994. It won the Spiel des Jahres back in 1994, which was the year before Catan, which is why a lot of us maybe haven't heard of it. 
Um, that's Manhattan. This is designed by Andrea Seafarth. And the new version from Foxmind is just recently released. And so it's kind of just been bubbling back towards the surface, people getting a chance to play this game again. The, the basic idea of the game is that you have this map with multiple grids on it, each of them three by three, and you're going to be placing different city pieces out on the map. And you do this by playing cards from your hand. Now, the interesting thing about the game is that the cards you play will have a, a location on them. So it'll have a grid of three by three, and it'll highlight one of those nine. And that's where you can place it, but from your perspective. So every card is different depending on who has it and where they play it. And you can play in any of the different city plots that are available on the map. And when you do that, you're going to place one of your little city pieces and they come in heights as little as one. And I think it goes up to four or five. The, the goal here is to have the most of the buildings that you own in a particular plot, uh, meaning that you have the most pieces in there and therefore are on top uh, of that building. Um, and to have the highest building, which is another bonus you get. So you're going to do this over the course of several rounds and kind of keep scoring each round to see who has the highest building and who has the most buildings in different places and kind of hopefully score these things out. So it's kind of a, a push-pull where you want to get bigger buildings out there, but you don't want to divert too many of your resources to it. Otherwise, you're not distributing your pieces enough around the map and you are therefore lose kind of the area control element of the game, which is really the majority of the game. The, the other interesting thing here too, is you kind of pre-program at the beginning of every round. So you don't just get to pick whatever you want from your pool of pieces. You're going to pick a set number of those pieces and say, these are the ones I'm going to play this round. And then as you play cards, you choose which one from that pool that you're going to play. So you kind of have to think a little bit like, what's everybody else going to do? Do I want to jump out and kind of grab a spot? Do I think someone else is going to grab it from me? Has everybody else used all their big pieces and I still have a couple? There's a lot of that kind of going on here. So it's definitely thematically the part about that makes it Manhattan is that you're building buildings and that's about it. So, you know, it doesn't have miniatures, doesn't have dice, doesn't have any of that. But the artwork in the new edition is really nice. The clear plastic pieces are very nice. They have a much nicer table presence than the older versions of this game. Relatively hard to find for a long time, too. So not only could you only get the kind of uglier older versions, but those were hard to find. So it's it's quick, it's easy, it's accessible. It's definitely a family game. It's kind of a perfect Spiel des weight game. Very, very simple to teach. Taught it to my seven-year-old, no problem. So I think it's well worth having this uh, if you're looking for this type of game. And it's like any, in my opinion, any good Spiel des winner should be relatively timeless. I don't think it should like, none of them, not all of them can be, but it should be a design that, 20, 25 years later, you look back on, and you're like, oh, that's still good. It's not dated. You know, the, the hobby hasn't outgrown it significantly or the game evolves with it. You know, like in the case of Catan, where it's offshoots and new versions have kept up with, you know, kind of hobby mechanisms. So Manhattan's definitely worth a play. I think you should check it out. If it's relatively inexpensive, this new edition, maybe it's worth picking up. If you really enjoy the old Manhattan, this is a very nice copy edition of it. If you're looking for something that's simple and easy to teach and kind of abstract in terms of strategy, it's also really might be interesting for you to pick up as well. So that's Manhattan. Other game I wanted to talk about is a Simon game. So miniatures and crazy overproduction for no reason. So um, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. But this is also a little bit of an abstract kind of game. Um, and that's Way of the Panda. Uh, so it's got a design team of Andrea Mainini, Walter Aubert, and Alberto Vindramini. And it is a worker placement game. Uh, at first glance, you may not realize that. And I think it's possible this has hurt them a little bit because you look at the box and you see big panda miniatures. And you look at the cover and it looks like they're all ready to fight. And you think Kung Fu Panda and Panda Miniatures and Simon and... That's got to be what they're going for here, right? And that's not at all what they're going for. This is a pure, almost to the point of dryness, worker placement game with a lot of thematic elements layered on top. It's not, I don't think it's a thematic game per se, but there's a lot of thematic elements in the game. <laughs> the idea here is that you have a set number of little panda workers, and then you have your three main pandas, the warrior, the monk, and the merchant, I think. And they're going to move around the map. The big guys are going to move around the map. And... Wherever they go, they can defeat bandits, ninjas, I think they are. They can lay down 
guards and roads can be cleared and they can build buildings. And most of the points you're going to get are going to be coming from the buildings that you build, but you can also get some points for laying out those roads over the course of the game. The, the way the buildings work is there's one specific building for each type of Panda. So everybody's got their monk, everybody's got their fighter, everybody's got their merchant and you can only build that one type of building with each of them. So you can't like run the same guy into a city and then just build a bunch of stuff. You have to get your other guy there too. The difference in the way it works though, is that each time another building is layered into that city, you need to have more ninjas defeated around the city. So you kind of can't do it by yourself, but you kind of also want to sneak around and jump in when someone else has done something already. (laughs) So if somebody else has cleared out of space, you jump in and hopefully build a building and score some points. The way the worker placement works is a little interesting. So you have some action points and you have this grid of options. The grid is four by six, I think. And each of the columns represents one of the different types of pandas. You have the blue, green, and red. Monks, merchants, fighters. And there's kind of a neutral one on the side that costs extra workers, but you can use it for any of the pandas. Then you have a cost. So the first row is zero. Those are free. They don't cost you any action points. They still cost you workers, but no action points. And then as you go down, they cost more. So one, two, three, four, five. And the other interesting thing is when you've taken an action, so you place a worker, let's say you place one on the one space for the monk. You can now not go back to the zero row at all for that particular round. You have to go to the right and down. So if you jump way ahead and decide, I'm going to take this really powerful action and build this thing before anybody else can do it, you now cannot do any of the other stuff before that. And even more importantly, when you take your guys back off the map, you only regain action points for the number of guys you take off. So if you only took one or two actions your whole turn, you're only going to get one or two action points back, and you probably spent a bunch. So you have to balance your actions. The game forces you to do it. You can't jump ahead. You can't do the big thing and cut everybody off, because if you do... Maybe you got the points this round, but the next round and possibly the round after that, and maybe even the round after that, you put yourself in a bad place. Um, I like that. I think a lot of games fail to balance that very well. So people can jump in and cut people off, especially if they played the game more. And they're just like, I know this is good and you don't know this is good. And haha, I got it. The, the thing about this game, though, is that it's I, I just don't know what's up with all the production here. It is a like I said, it's a very straightforward worker placement game. It has a few interesting elements. The grid is interesting, but it it takes a little bit more to teach and for people to wrap their heads around than, you know, maybe just a straight setup. It's almost spreadsheety in the way it works. And at the same time, the, the actual actions on the map are pretty repetitive. You're moving a guy, you're fighting, and you're building. And that's basically it. Um, there's nothing else interesting going on there. You know, you're trying to build up your powers a little bit. There's an element of like you get these different items that you pick up throughout the game that make you be able to fight more ninjas at once or get some extra points at the end. But the actual core idea is pretty much the same. Move, fight, build, that's it. And it's all pretty abstracted. So in terms of a worker placement game, it's fine. I don't, I like it, but I don't love it. I don't think it would stick around too long. I would give it a play, but it's definitely not like one of the better ones that I've played recently. The problem with the game is that it's 80 bucks. And the reason it's 80 bucks is because you have all these miniatures in the box that don't need to be there. I mean, it's a Simon game. I get it. It looks very pretty, but that some parts don't look pretty. Like the map itself is kind of hard to work with. There's little bitty, little bitty things going on there. The grid is, I mean, I don't know how much, how pretty you can make a spreadsheet, but you know, they tried. It's still just kind of a spreadsheet and your little panda workers are so small. You know, they're the size of a pinky nail. You can't even really see what they are. And so you really just have 12 really cool looking big panda miniatures and then a whole bunch of other artwork and stuff layered on top. And they're charging you pretty premium fee for that. I don't think the gameplay supports a cost this high. And I don't necessarily think that the miniatures and all the buildings and all the bits and baubles that come with this are necessary. You know, if you if they've done this in all wood, I don't think... I don't know if it'd be cheaper necessarily, but it would at least not feel overproduced to that level. So yeah, it's a play. It's a soft play. If you're looking at like purchasing it, you know, definitely don't or wait until it's on discount or, you know, you can find a cheap copy somewhere, but it's not a 
bad game if you have a chance to give it a go. There are some interesting ideas in here. So I think it's the only reason I'm not giving it a dodge is that there are some interesting ideas that I like that I'd like to see in other games. Like the action point integration with the kind of forward progression in how you place your workers, I do really like that. And I think it works really well in mitigating some issues in really basic worker placement games. But everything else is just kind of bland. Uh, and it just doesn't really do it for me. So that is Way of the Panda. Yeah, it almost seems like there are two different companies producing these games for Simon, where the miniatures are just poured over with love and care. And then the boards and sometimes some of the mechanics don't really have the same amount of effort put into them. I know we got to play this, or at least I got to demo this over at Gen Con. And it was fine, but as you mentioned, for the price point, and for the mechanics and the choices you're making, it's just fine. And, you know, I, I don't think that fine is an $80 price tag for a game these days. No, I don't think you can pull that off. You know, we've seen some euros like Heaven and Ale or Queen Bra selling for like 70 And I think that's really pushing it. I think it's too expensive. But 80 bucks for just a euro. And that's all this is. It's just a euro, a medium weight euro. Uh, sure. that, that's insane. You know, and I didn't mention they do yeah. have some like end goal cards and some in-game cards that kind of adjust the rules a little bit they don't do enough i don't think i think if you had multiples of those somehow you had like individual player powers related to that that could really push the game forward a little bit but it's just not enough not for that much yeah all right well i'm glad to see that manhattan's back because that's looks really colorful and it's a good game to be back in print yeah absolutely all right, so talking about games that we wanted to bring back to the table, first up, I want to talk about Merlin. This is a game from Stefan Feld and Michael Resnick from Queen Games. This is basically a big rondelle in which Merlin is assisting you in having an opportunity to be the new heir. King Arthur is looking for his new heir, and by your actions in this game, in which you are fighting off barbarians, you're working with the local manners and the local population to gain the most influence and resources possible. Author is going to name you the royal successor. The game itself basically comes down to, in part, a roll and move game. So basically what you're looking at for yourself is a really nicely decorative player board in which you're going to have Merlin, yourself as a knight, whatever color you happen to be the little ramparts and you're going to have these barbarian little slots that they're going to fit into. You're going to have flags that are going to fit into the side. This is a really nicely set up game. It looks beautiful. And then basically you're going to roll your four dice, three for your knight and one for Merlin. And then you're going to move your knight around this rondelle. And basically the rondelle is going to have a number of different action spots, which are going to allow you to get victory points, of course, but it's also going to allow you to place your henchmen in different areas. By placing your henchmen in these different kind of areas, you are going to be able to gain influence, gain resources, gain flags, and gain shields that are going to fight off uh, these barbarians that are coming in. So very colorful game. All of these different countries that are going to come into play are all a different color, and it's easily identifiable what you're supposed to do in this game. Now, typically when you say rondelle, it's going to be very heavy and crunchy. When you say roll and move, it means it's going to be very light and simplistic. This game does a little bit of both because the roll and move, which typically is a little bit challenging because rolling a dice and that being what you're going to be able to do is kind of a letdown. But this game does have a lot of different opportunities to mitigate the dice roll. So there are apples in this game that are going to give you an special ability to change the die to whatever you want. The flags in the game from the different countries that are involved are going to give you ways to mitigate your dice or mitigate where your knight happens to go on the board. And then there's like a little country board where you're going to place manners that are also going to give you special abilities, score you victory points. Game's pretty short. It only takes about six rounds contract cards that you'll be getting that you'll try to score each and every round based upon what flags, shields, resources, and influence you have available. What's good about that is you don't have to spend these resources in order to accomplish those goals. And as you accomplish those different contract cards, you'll be get to more of those. So basically you're scoring about, I would say, 
typically about one to four points every turn around the board. And basically what you're going to come up with is typically somewhere about 70, 80, even to 100 or a little bit above. Now, you can also pick up Merlin with the two Queenies that are available. So Queenie 1 adds Treasures of the Environs, which are going to add these little hex tiles that are going to make that little kingdom where you place the manners more interactive. Basically, what's going to allow is instead of just having a couple of those spots that are going to give you some special bonuses, all of the spots can have special bonuses or negatives in the game. That makes the game a lot better. I would always play with the first queenie there. There is a second queenie, the King's Decree, that's going to allow you to get a kind of random special resource. So it could be a flag, it could be a resource cube, it could be a shield, or it could be just straight up victory points. Instead of taking the action where the the knight has gone to, you can take one of these or you can collect them and then trade them in to alter your dice rolls, to get additional resources, or to get victory points during the game. I would highly recommend playing with both queenies in the game. It really does add a lot more to the game, and it kind of makes it a little more than a kind of roll and move. We already talked about the other expansion last week, and that seems to add even more to this game. It's going to actually add another for King Arthur to move around and being able to activate different spots on the board. So this game has a lot of different things to do in it, but none of the things are very complicated. It's a little on the light side for my taste, and basically it kind of fits the kind of queen aesthetic. Everything's really nicely done. The stickers on the different henchman pieces are a little under quality for the rest of the components in the game. But overall, Merlin gets a play. It's just a generally nice kind of light game. I would definitely like to see something more added to this game. We already talked about the expansion. Hopefully that will add the more that this game really truly does need because I'd like to recommend this game, but without the expansion, I just don't think generally it has enough to make it a buy. Yeah, I think I'm in a similar boat. I really liked it. I want to like it more. Yeah, but it just isn't quite enough. I was really excited for the expansion for that reason. It's pretty rare that a game comes out where I'm just like, it's fine. I really want to like it, though. I really like the theme. I really like the ideas here. It's just not quite there yet. And uh, it seems like hopefully we're getting. Yeah, me too. All right. So another game that came out recently that has gotten some confusion out there is the Palace of Mad King Ludwig. Now, this is not the castle of Mad King Ludwig. This is the Palace of Mad King Ludwig. This is by Ted Alsback and Bezier Games. And once again, this is, I guess, the spiritual successor from the Castles of Mad King Ludwig. But what you're doing here is a little different than what you did in Castles. Now, in Castles, basically what you were doing were you were bidding for different rooms to add to your own castle to make it unique, to score victory points based upon what rooms were touching what other rooms. It had an expansion, which was secret, that added moats to the game, which made the game feel a lot more like an actual castle instead of just having some random odd pieces that were added to it. Now, with the palace of Mad King Ludwig, you're doing something similar, but instead of making your own castle, here you have your own individual player board where you're going to track the the different rooms that you're going to build as part of the palace. In addition to that, there's also going to be spots to put secret goals Think like Suburbia or actually Castles of Mad King Ludwig, where you're trying to get the most of the yellow buildings or the least of the of the yellow buildings. And there's also going to be spots where you'll be able to place a tile in order to activate a special ability that you'll have throughout the game. The game basically is very similar to the Castles of Mad King Ludwig. There'll be a number of rooms up for purchase. And what you're going to do is choose one of the first two rooms for free or the next two for one swan, and swans in this game are currency, and they're also a set collection mechanic in which will score you victory points at the end of the game. Or the final two that that cost two additional swans. Basically, you're going to choose one of these square buildings. They'll all be different colors, and they'll have special abilities, and they'll have different entrances and exits that are going to have swans on them. Based upon where you place the building, how it's lined up with the other buildings, and if the swans match, you will gain special abilities, you will gain swans in the game, uh, you'll have opportunities to score victory points at the end of the game, and once rooms are complete, 
and tiles start going, then what you're going to do is a really interesting mechanic here is you're going to start playing moat tiles. Now, moat tiles are just the same square tiles, just like the rooms, but they are eventually going to close up the board. So once a certain number of piles go away, every time a room is completed, no matter whose room it's completed, you're going to be able to place moats, which are going to block off other entrances for those rooms and kind of like mess with your opponent's kind of situation. Basically, the game will finally come to an end when the moat kind of surrounds everything or you run out of tiles in the game. And that's pretty much it as far as the game. You'll take a look at your swans as far as set collection. You'll take a look at the number and color of buildings that you built throughout the game. So if you complete a certain number of buildings, you'll gain victory points. If you complete all the different types of buildings to a certain level, you'll get additional victory points. This is a pretty high scoring game. It doesn't seem so at start, but it's very similar to the castles of Mad King Ludwig as far as the same room types, the same colors that are activated here, the same stairwells or same basement rooms. So if you play the castles, the palace of Mad King Ludwig won't be very different. So I would say this game is worth a solid play there are some challenges as far as it being a little samey. It's not the same game, but it's similar enough, at least in theme and in look, that a lot of people were like, I kind of played something somewhat similar. Maybe I don't need to play both of these games, or maybe I don't need to have both these games in my collection. I do like having this game as part of my collection. I do like the aesthetics here that are in play. I do like the mechanics that are here in play. But it's really a kind of a fiddly game for what you're getting. So for the Palaces Made King Ludwig, definitely check it out. Hopefully this game will get an expansion as well and kind of open the game up to being something a little more different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this one, I ignored it completely because I had zero interest in a follow-up to Castles because I didn't really like that game as much. But, you know, your description, I'm like, I kind of want to give it a go. Uh, at least see what the differences are. Yeah, I think the big problem with this game is, in fact, what they were trying to do from a marketing standpoint was help connect it to like like a, a line of like Mad King games. And I know recently they did that with Between Two Cities, having Between Two Castles. But I got to be honest with you, I brought this game around a lot to different game groups and people were like, I played that already. I'm like, no, it's not the castles, it's the palace. And they're like, no, it looks kind of the same. It plays kind of the same. And I think it really worked against them. I think Bezier Games really didn't learn their lesson from the suburbia subdivision situation. And this game is kind of hurt by that. I love castles. So I could never personally have enough castle games, but they really need to be something different in order for you to pick up another 60 some odd dollar game and add it to your collection. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that's been hitting our table this week. Let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about the top 10 mystery games. Now, mystery comes in all different facets and it plays out extremely well in board games. There are so many different types of mystery-like board games that we can talk about. And we brought together the 10 best board games that typically have the best mechanics. So if you have not yet played a mystery game in the board gaming kind of like era, um, you should definitely want to check these games out. So, Anthony, you're a big mystery fan, aren't you? Some some mystery stories, some mystery movies, some mystery men. <laughs> yeah, the last one, the most. Yes. Yeah, I love mystery stuff. It's uh, noir fiction, the, those old pulpy uh, detective novels. That's that's the stuff that I love. If you put any IP into like a noir setting, I'll love it. It's probably why, like, Batman's my favorite comic book character. He's a detective. You know, the right versions of Batman is a detective. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And so some of my favorite board games are deduction-style games. And we'll talk about a few of them here, not all of them. Yeah, a good mystery is a lot of fun, if implemented correctly. All right, Anthony, so why don't you start us off with our number 10? Halloween's usually a party night. People want to get together. So we picked Deception Murder in Hong Kong, because for my money, this is one of the better mystery style social deduction games. It is a game in which you have a forensic scientist who knows the solution. They know the key evidence and the murder weapon. And then you have the murderer and the accomplice. 
and they're trying to kind of mess with things and stop people from guessing it right. And then a bunch of investigators and the investigators are working together and taking different actions to try to get clues out of the forensic scientist to figure out the solution. But the forensic scientist, of course, cannot do anything except for use the little board in front of them and the cards that have been drawn out and kind of say, this is, it's more like this, but not like this. It's kind of like a game of hot and cold almost. Interesting part is everybody has kind of a tableau of cards in front of them of different types of evidence and different means of murder. And that's what you're working with. So you have a big table of people all kind of arguing and fighting and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. You don't know who the murderer is. You don't know if, if there's an accomplice, depending on the number of players, you know, what they're thinking. And uh, it really comes together right, quite nicely. So that's uh, Deception, Murder in Hong Kong. All right, our number nine game is Tragedy Looper. Tragedy Looper is a really unique, interesting mystery game. It's a scenario-based deduction game in which one player plays the mastermind and is trying to get away with one of these kind of sinister scenarios. It could be murder, it could be suicide, serial killer, conspiracy theorist. And the rest of the players are trying to figure out what happened and trying to put together the pieces that the mastermind throws out there. So the mastermind is trying to run out the clock. The investigators are trying to figure it out. And if they don't figure out by the end of the day, the day restarts and they go back with some new knowledge about the situation that occurred and try to see if they're able to figure it out. Now, the mastermind has a lot of different ways of throwing the players off. And there's a lot of anxiety and, and paranoia that kind of throws the characters into a loop and keeps them from figuring out the mystery. It's a game that keeps you guessing throughout the whole thing. And it definitely has that really great kind of Groundhog Day, but it with a sinister twist. That is our number nine game, Tragedy Looper. Okay, number eight. It's a little bit of a cheat because it is 11 different games, but it's all under the same system. And that's Exit the Game. This is the... A uh, series of different types of uh, escape. It's an escape room style game, but each of these is kind of its own thing where some of them you're trying to explore, you know, a Pharaoh's tomb. Other ones you're trying to solve the murder on the Orient Express. Other ones you are hunting for sunken treasure. The thing that they all have in common is that you are cracking codes, solving puzzles, collecting objects, looking through different pieces of paper and clues and all the different things that come in the box and trying to figure out the solution based on what's presented to you on these cards. It is a great mystery and some of them a little bit better than others, but almost all of them are halfway decent depending on the theme that you like. And it's a great activity, especially if you have like three or four people who just want to sit around and solve a mystery together. Let's exit the game. Our number seven game is Chronicles of Crime. This is a brand new game that should be coming out at Essen or at least at PAX Unplugged. We got a chance to play this, I guess, way back when, and we talked about this on a previous episode. This is a really interesting crime investigation game that utilizes VR experience. So you basically need your phone and it gives you the different components you need. It's kind of like really interesting looking little glass that when you scan the QR code, you'll be able to investigate the different crime scenes and be able to ask people different questions that might lead you to clues to figure out the crime. This game has a number of different scenarios in it. Of course, there's locations, characters, and items that are used over and over again. But each game is different, and each game brings you into those kind of seedy little details that'll be able to expose the crime. That's our number seven game, Chronicles of Crime. All righty. Number six on the list, we talked about this last time we did one of these Halloween lists, is Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. This is a horror game that has a lot of elements of mystery and deduction built into it. I mean, the whole idea of any of the Arkham games, really, is that you are investigators trying to figure out what's going on. So each of these has its own kind of unique take, whether you're trying to track down the cultists and figure out what they're summoning, or if there's this creature trying to destroy the town or whatever it ends up being. But the game is full of different things you're trying to work your way through. There are puzzles that you have to solve within the apps. There are monsters you have to fight, of course, but then also the puzzle of how to fight the monsters, the investigation of the different rooms. If you don't go to the right area of the room, maybe you don't get the evidence you need to actually figure out where you're supposed to go. So Mansions of Madness Second Edition is probably one of the better cooperative board games period out there right now, especially if you want a horror themed one. 
uh, and is a fantastic entry uh, if you're looking for a solid mystery game. Our number five game is A Study in Emerald. This is a Martin Wallace game that utilizes Lovecraftian cosmic horror to kind of envelop you in this mystery of, first off, who is your teammate? Who is your loyalist that's fighting with you? Or who's part of the restorationist that's fighting against these cosmic horror creatures? In addition to kind of like that who is who role situation in which you're playing this really kind of crunchy Euro game, it also employs Neil Gaiman's classic story here of Sherlock Holmes, but with a twist, which I will not ruin. This game has some really interesting dynamics to it as far as trying to take out these cosmic old ones, and yet at the same time, not being sure and being a little paranoid about who's on your team and then what sinister mysteries lie ahead of you. That's our number five game, A Study in Emerald. All right, number four on the list is Detective, a modern crime board game. This is a new release from Portal Games, just came out over the summer. It is a fantastic take on the detective genre of game. It's all about trying to solve there are out of the box five different cases. Each of them takes about two to three hours to solve. And you'll be working together to try to figure these things out. And the way it ends up working is you're not just working with the cards and the clues that are in the box, but you have this database online that has all this extra additional information. And throughout the game, they'll highlight different things that you can go Google and look up on Wikipedia or wherever it is that you need information. So if they reference, you know, a offensive during World War II in Greece, you can go look that up and know what that means. So, and a lot of the times the information you need to kind of move the case forward is in that type of information. So the game is not just about trying to solve a puzzle. It's about legitimately trying to collect information, working within the confines of the game, because everything you do takes a certain amount of time and you only have so many days for each case. So you need to be efficient, and any actions that don't use time, you want to do liberally. Write everything down, cooperate with each other, work together, work with at least three or four people on this because you need all those different minds coming together. This is, in my opinion, one of the best deduction games out there, if you don't mind the kind of digital integration because it is vital for this game. You can't really play it without. You know, Some people are not a fan of that, but if that doesn't bother you, absolutely worth checking out Detective, a modern crime our number three game is Fury of Dracula. I would say fourth edition, but any of the editions really will do. Now, Fury and Dracula, what you're trying to do is outwit the hunters that are trying to track you down as you move stealthily throughout this board, utilizing your kind of monstrous and, of course, Dracula special powers. And then when things should get just right and the, the hunters don't think that they can find you, you jump out and try to take one of them out. It's really horror at its best because you never know when it's going to hit. And whoever's playing Dracula gets a lot of fun ducking and dodging until that final confrontation. That's our number three game, Fury of Dracula. Number two on the list is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. This one almost got bumped down for me by Detective, but there's just something about Sherlock Holmes where I just couldn't do it. Also, there's a lot more cases to work with, whereas Detective still just has the five. Sherlock Holmes, I think they have 15 or 20 at this point. The original Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective content came out back in like 1984, 1981. It's been around for a long time. And that these original cases are collected in the Tim's Murders and other cases, which you can pick up. I think Asmodee releases it now. There are also two new big box versions of this, Jack the Ripper and West End Adventures, and then Carlton House and Queens Park. You can get any of these. They're all independent of each other. Um, Jack the Ripper is particularly interesting because it's a bit of a campaign. There are multiple cases there. But what you get is a book full of clues, and it's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure where you choose where to go, who to talk to, and then you read it and hopefully pull the clues out of there that you need. You also get newspapers that relate to the different days that you're investigating. And so you can read through the newspaper and look for different clues based on that. Sometimes they're related to each other. Sometimes they're not. And when you get to the end of a case, when you've decided you've done enough or your time runs out, you look at the back, you answer a few questions, and you see how you performed versus Sherlock Holmes. The whole idea here is that you are you are the Baker Street Irregulars, and you're trying to solve the case faster or better or something than Sherlock Holmes. Of course you can't, and he always beats you, but 
how close can you get? And that's the fun. These are just so much fun. I do them sometimes by myself, just at the end of the day, sitting on the couch. Still haven't gotten through all of them because there are a lot of them. Uh, and it is a fantastic mystery if you're looking for something a little Victorian, old school, not necessarily dark and Halloween-ish, but at the same time has that nice feel uh, of kind of a pulpy mystery. Is Mysterium. Mysterium is this fascinating game in which one of the players plays this ghost of this murder victim and is trying to communicate with these psychic investigators utilizing these Dixit-like cards in order to give clues about their murder. And while they're doing that, they're also giving hints about other murders that have occurred in this haunted mansion. Each of the psychic investigators are working cooperatively, but at the end of the game, only one of them can figure out who committed this murder. It adds some social deduction. It adds a lot of different elements of just trying to know each other and what we might think about when we think about trying to give information to each other that might seem a little bit scary, a little bit dreamlike, and just hopefully the right clues in order to figure out this investigation. All right, so that's our top 10 mystery games. We hope that you enjoy this list and hope that you employ it at your upcoming Halloween parties. All these great games are fantastic ways to enjoy the Halloween season. All right, so that's the end of this week. All right, so that's the end of this episode, but not the end of BGA. We still move on like an undead spirit. We have brand new episodes for you on our BGA Patreon account at patreon.com backslash BGA. So help us out in the holiday season and enjoy some treats from some special episodes. All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table.